Genesis chapter 37. We're going to take the whole chapter today, and the title is God's Sovereignty of Life. Now today, as we start, we're starting a new section in the book of Genesis. Chapter 37 through the book, end of the book of Genesis to chapter 50 is a section that is a new and a focus around the life of Jacob, but more specifically to one of his sons, Joseph. A full quarter of the book of Genesis devoted to the life of Joseph. And as we read the life of Joseph, you will see in him a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we will see those parallels. There are over a hundred parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. And that is not by some mistake. It is by God's design to teach from the very beginning uh, of, uh, from the start of creation all the way through. That we want to know, and God wants us to know, who Jesus Christ is. The Son of God. Now, Joseph is one of the greatest men in the Bible, along with another man in the Old Testament by the name of Daniel. One of only of two major characters that we see in the book of, of the Old Testament of the, of the Bible, whom there is no mention of sin in those two men's lives. Nowhere in the scripture. He was the most Christian-like example that we have, and that is why we're going to take the time to study uh, the life of Joseph. And bridge that and show that link to the life of Jesus Christ. And as we see in the story of Joseph, we have find insights about Jesus, the prophecies that point to Jesus, and the understandings concerning the nature of Jesus. We're going to study and see the life or the genealogy or the its reference in verse 2, the history of Jacob and the life. Now you would think, here's a great godly example of a man, Joseph. That we will see, and as you're like a novel, and you open up a novel, you start reading this novel, and you say, ooh, this is exciting. Ooh, I got done with that chapter. But you're so, you don't want to put it down because you're so riveted about what's the answer, what, what's going to happen to all the characters. Now some people cheat and go to the end of the novel and look to see what happened at the end of the story. Well, God wants us to do that. So I want you to continue to read through the book of Genesis because I want you to be in anticipation of what is going to take place in the life of Joseph so that you can hear it, you've read it, you've meditated on it, you've studied it, and you come back and we talk about it. Because you and I want to know the character of this man who God is going to be using. And it's not going to be an easy life. Just because you walk with God, you know God, and, you, and you, you're experiencing God working mightily through your life does not mean you're going to have an easy road of life. And we were going to see Joseph is a picture-perfect example of someone who has a lot of experiences and circumstances in life that are not good. But it's part of God's sovereign work in his life. That you have to believe. By faith, because you can't, you aren't going to fully understand it. And you're going to see your life is like a puzzle. You're all excited. It's winter time, and you don't have anything else to do because you're certainly not going out in the winter at this time because it's too cold. So you decide as a family, you're going to put a puzzle together. Have you ever anyone put a puzzle together around here? 
Or is that out, is that out these days? Some of us old people still put puzzles together. We love it as a family. You know how you put a puzzle together? You have this picture in front of you. You see the box. You go, oh, what a beautiful picture. But then you bring all these pieces out, and you start flipping them around, and you're trying to look at them, and you think you know what each piece is going to go to. You, you're gonna, you got that, and you got the box, and you're matching, and that looks like the color, and you figure it out, and you go, oh, it's in the upper right-hand corner. And then finally... Eventually, you think you know where all these pieces that are in the puzzle go to. <laughs> you know as well as I do what happens. You think it's been sitting up there. You can't find that piece. You're under, you know that piece is supposed to be here. And then at the end, what happens to that piece that you've just been driving you nuts? After you've blamed your spouse for mixing puzzles up with another puzzle somewhere. Kids must have mixed them up because this piece does not go in here. This is not part of this puzzle. But at the very end, all of a sudden, it's the piece of puzzle that goes right in the main part of the puzzle. You just couldn't see it at the time. But at the end of the puzzle, when things start as you life, as you get older and you can look back, you can see how all those pieces start coming together and it creates a beautiful portrait of life that God has created for you. But you have to go by faith and not by sight in the beginning. So here in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, we see that now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. So we see here, finally, Jacob and his family are doing what God is said to do, to be in the land where his father was, his family, and to become sojourners or pilgrims, having light touch of the things in this world. That we are to live like a, this is foreign land to us, passing through to eternity. That this, we don't grab a hold of what this life has to offer, but we allow God to bring us through this knowing that our home is in heaven and not here on this earth. Amen? Because I don't know about you, there's nothing in this world that I want to hold on to. It is falling apart in front of our eyes and coming unraveled. And the more we grab a hold of that, the more depressed you will become. More dis discontented you will become. More delusion and doubting, all kinds of things will happen emotionally, physically, but even spiritually in your life. But in verse 2, we see that this is the history or the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being the 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So we see the character here of Joseph coming alive. We see at this point he is 17 years old. Now how many of you all of a sudden hear, oh, he's a 17-year-old. What kind of things are you thinking about a 17-year-old? <coughs> Some of you are not thinking good thoughts. Some of you thinking, oh, you have no idea what my 17-year-old son was like. You know, you get all kinds of images going on in your head. But what is God's thoughts about this man, Joseph, this 17-year-old? What's more important is what God views the 17-year-old. That's what is most important, isn't it? 
How does God see him? God created him in his mother's womb for a purpose and for a plan. And his sovereign work is going to be played out in this young man's life and at 17. Some people say, oh, wait till he grows up, gets out of college, or gets out of high school, or gets out, whatever stage, right, that they, they, the parents think he has to get through. Most parents say, get him out of the house, because he's eating me out of the house at home. But that is part of what God's provision. You're going to have to trust God's going to still provide enough funds to feed the man. But here's something important for you as parents to notice. That 17-year-old wasn't sitting around on the couch. Look what he did. He was out feeding the flock with his brothers. He was working. He was about his father's business. He was doing what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to take care of the flock that is for the family. That is what he's doing for his father. And he did alongside with his siblings, his brothers. Those, remember, he, Joseph is the, the 11th brother of 12. Benjamin's the youngest. But he is the firstborn of Rachel. And he is the beloved wife of Jacob. So he has a, a different position in, his, in Jacob's mind, being the first son of the wife he loves. But he is the 11th son. So he's got 10 older brothers that he has to deal with. And we're going to see it doesn't go well for the life of Joseph through this chapter. But we see here that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But he sits there at the end of the verse 2 and says, Joseph brought a bad report to them to his father. Now initially you would sit there and say, what is a 17-year-old acting like an 8-year-old or a 7-year-old or whatever maybe being a tattletale or a, ta a tale bearer to his father? You don't do that to your brothers, do you? You don't go tell dad that your brothers have done something wrong now, do you? Yes, if something is going wrong, you're to live a life of righteousness. You're to live a life that is good and right. And if there's something that is gone wrong that dad needs to know, then you have an obligation to do what? Tell the truth. But so many people today is, oh, you're a tattletaler, and how dare you? And, and think about this. Here is a man, here's a young man who is going to, who's is really putting his life in his own hands. Why? Because he's got 10 older brothers who are going to take him out. I had two older brothers. I can't imagine having 10. I had more beatings for my two brothers growing up because I went and told mom that they did something they weren't supposed to do, and I paid dearly for that. You've been there if you've had older brothers. But he, Joseph, was not being a talebearer or a, a, a tattletale here. You might think that at first glance when you read this, but he wasn't. Because Joseph, as we will see, was an overseer for his father for the things that the father owned. And he is an overseer. He's going to be asked for and be responsible to, to report these things to his dad. And whatever his brothers were going to do or didn't do, it must have been terribly or wicked enough to cause him to go tell dad. Because he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't bad enough. 
We also know that Joseph was put as an overseer in a couple of things. One we'll see here today as we read, but also you find a glimpse of that in John chapter 4, verse 5, where God, Jacob, gave a plot of land to Joseph, which is the West Bank today in Israel. It was given to him. So at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did we ever seem to get his eyes off of God. As we read and study his life, he never seemed to get his eyes off of God or cease to trust God with his life. Even through adversity that we will see in his life that did not change his character. Prosperity that we will see him bring about and accumulate or be given through the promises of God did not ruin him. And he was the same privately and publicly as we study the scriptures. He was the same man regardless of the environment that he was in. We too are to be just like that. You should not be one man at home and another one at work and another one in your neighborhood and the one when you're in private. He was truly a great man. Now what created this character in this man? What influenced this man? If you go back and you think about this as the 11th son, he was a godly young man. Remember, he experienced watching his dad go from living up with Laban, his uncle, Uncle Laban, and seeing the dynamics there, seeing Uncle Laban with his guys coming down after him, the whole situation with wrestling with God and going, he was fine by this point, and overnight he comes showing up and the family's watching Dad limp, and he's, ever, he's had a limp ever since. And Dad explaining to his son, Say, Joseph, this is what happened. God and came and wrestled me. And it changed my life. Joseph listened and took that in. When he experienced the trauma of his sister being violated by Shechem, he watched and he listened and he saw and that built and changed that young man. When we take a look at the fact that his two brothers, Simeon and Levi, killed all of these men after being, them being circumcised. What taught Joseph about being gentle and tender? What about his oldest brother, Reuben, that he must have looked up to? And he slept with Bilhah, his dad's wife or the maidservant of one of his men. These things have an effect on a young man's life. And we see these elements coming into play, and it built a godly man up, Joseph, and God is going to continue to take him through some traumatic experiences. And because of God's sovereignty over his life, we're going to see this godly man be used, so used by God that he actually saves millions of lives. Millions. And sometimes all we see is these pieces of puzzle that said, oh, that should have never happened to him. It should have never happened to her. It shouldn't have never 
that should never couldn't have that's dramatic. But as children of God, we have to know that God is sovereign. And God is sovereign over your life. If you will choose to continue to follow him. Romans 8:28. God can turn. God is a good God. And he can turn these bad situations, circumstances into good for those who love him according to his call. Do you believe that, my brothers and sisters? We will see it played out in the life of this man, Joseph. We've seen lots of godly men in the scripture. Enoch shows a walk of faith. You know Noah, we've experienced when we studied him about perseverance of faith. When we studied Abraham, he had such obedience of faith. Isaac, God gave him such power of faith. Jacob, he was the discipline of faith. And we're going to see Joseph's life played out over these next 13 chapters. And he'll have a triumphant faith that God is going to bring him through. And nowhere in the scriptures do we see Joseph never complained. And he never compromised his walk with God. Through it all. Now, when you compare his life with Jesus, Joseph understood the boundaries. He understood and he cared for his father and he was accountable to his father. Just like Jesus is in harmony as well with his father, John 8, 29. I always do the things that please my father. Jesus asked, don't, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? Luke 2, 49, Jesus declared. And he also said, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees and hears the father do, John 5, 19. When we study the word of God, we want to know what God says and so that we can hear it and then do it. You know, Joseph, no doubt, as a brother, knew that his, his brothers were going to be quite upset with him by telling dad about what took place in the field. But you see a characteristic of this young man that says, regardless of the consequences that he will face against those who will come against him, he will still do what is right and tell dad. See, the Bible tells me, I will either seek to please God or you will seek to please man, Galatians 1.10. And I'm going to be concerned with what the Father thinks about the way I am going or doing or the plans that I make or I am going to be concerned with the opinions of those around me regarding the things I do. Will you follow God or will you follow man in the things that you do in a day to day? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. But the fear of man is a snare, Proverbs 29, 25. There is no middle ground, my brothers and sisters. 
We are either living in the fear of the Lord or in the fear of man. And I pray as you mature and you grow in your knowledge and understanding of God and he brings you through these circumstances of life, you will continue to to honor and, and glorify and to have this healthy fear of just reverence to the Lord. And you will not lift man up high and be someone you follow. Verse 3, now Israel. Remember, he used to be Jacob. And then God got a hold of him. He's back to Bethel. And now he's Israel, governed by God. So he's a changed man here by now. So now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Well, (laughs) it's good to know that dad loves his son. But it's interesting when you see here that he loves his son more than all of his other children. And any time you have favoritism, it's not going to be good. But he loved him so much, that, and he put him in a position of his overseer, or a position, or prominent position within the family, even though he was the younger son. Why? Reuben lost his birthright. He slept with his, 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 Jacob's wife, Bilhah. Simeon and Levi lost the, the, any credibility. Why? They went and slaughtered men, wiped out a community that was not part of God's plan. They lost the birthright of anything. Judah will see hangs in there and does well in certain regards. But what happened is God has appointed and is going to use Joseph to bring about things. And he makes him a tunic of many colors. Now, people will call it many colors. Was it it design? Was it blinged out or something? What what was the deal with this, this coat? But if you understood back in that culture... If you had a, what I refer to as a trench coat, and it's a t- tunic, a one-piece tunic that would go all the way to the wrist and would go all the way to the ankles and covered completely, that means you're in a position that you're not going to get your hands dirty. You're overseeing what everyone else is laboring to do. Because if you're going to be a laborer in the field to farm, you're not going to have a full-out gown on you from, from wrist down to your ankle. And it's certainly not going to be pretty. But these many patches or colors, we will know, I believe it was many patches sewn together to create this special tunic, or at least many colors of it. Why? Because later on we were going to see that coat come into play to identify Joseph. But this sign, this tunic that his father gave him, gave him a specific favor or a princely standing or birthright and it was a dramatic way of saying he was the son to receive the birthright of Jacob now if you're 10 brothers older than you are looking at you as a younger brother saying you're going to get everything from dad dad's pouring into your life dad's giving you some special position and we're going to go out there and labor that's not going to go well guess what happened it plays out just what you think. Verse 4. But then when the, his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So you know the brothers. 
They're around the, around the table. They got their bowl of cereal and milk and their spoon, and you know they're not having lovely conversations. They couldn't speak peacefully with him. They couldn't be around him without trying to tear him down. Constantly, constantly putting him down. Can't, nothing peaceable. Just nothing but strife and division among these brothers now. Why? Because they were not happy that dad has now appointed a younger brother and showing favoritism, let alone an overseer of the family birthright. But Jesus was also hated by his brothers because he was in harmony with the father. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus, as well, was hated without a cause. He was hated without a cause. He was falsely accused, just like Joseph is in this story. Now, sadly, Jacob's family did not enjoy the blessings of unity. There should be unity within the family, unity within the church family. And what happens here is we see that there was no unity right from the very inception of the home. Why? Because Jacob was not a leader of his house. He wasn't a leader, a spiritual leader of his house to govern well over his house. And he didn't bring God into this, his family. And these two wives of his, which were two sisters, were rivals. And they were competing who could have more children than another. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We need to pursue and to seek to have unity. Now Joseph, in verse 5, had a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves or bundles in the field. Then behold, my sheep arose and also stood upright. And, and indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheep. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, if you've been around here in the North Country, you've seen these sheaves, have you not? Amish still farms like this many times. You'll go through, they've cut the wheat, they've cut the wheat, and they bind it up, and it looks like a little teepee, and they bind something around it to keep it standing up to air and dry through the season. And you see them dotted all around the countryside. So here you have to picture, here he says, I received a dream, and he was compelled to tell his brothers, <laughs> oh, he's going to have more fun over this, he's going to tell his brothers what God has given him. And I believe it was divine uh, revelation by God, and we will see why, because it all plays out, does it not? Because later in the story, we're going to see it's exactly what happens, this story of this dream that's true, here he is, says, God showed me that we cut, we bring these bundles it up, and then all of your bundles, you were around me and bowed down to me. Little brother telling big brothers, you're going to bow down. And he obviously, God gave him the interpretation of the dream. Why do I believe that? 
because the brother's response. The brother said, we're going to reign. You're going to reign over us. You're going to have dominion over us. So you know Joseph didn't hold back what that dream meant. Now we also know, as if you read ahead, God gives Joseph dreams that's going to save his life and use his life later on when he's in prison, remember. So there's no doubt in my mind that God gave him this dream, gave him the understanding, and he shared it all with his loving brothers. But is that not true for us today? God has given us a divine message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Will you be compelled just like Joseph and go out and tell someone about Jesus Christ and how you can have eternal life? Or do you fear man and hold back at the consequence of possibly your brothers or your family or neighbors are going to get upset with you because you shared the gospel? Joseph didn't, wasn't held back. He was compelled by God to share the dream with his brothers. And what happened? Verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream. God gave him another dream, a divine revelation. And what had happened? And he told it to his brothers and he said, look, I have dreamed another dream and this time, the sun, the moon, and the, ele- the, the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, you're probably having a flash to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, where the idea of the stars, the moon, and the sun representing the family of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, and it speaks of Jesus coming from the nation of Israel. And so we set him not only above his brothers here in this dream, but also set him above his father and his mother all. Now, just like Joseph dreams that God gave him a dream, God gives us his word of God. They gave him the assurance he needed when the going was hard because Because of that dream and because he loved God and he was going to be faithful to God, he shared the second dream. And just like he gives us the word of God and he gives us the word of God, he are then to share the word of God. And we have such a promise and such stability knowing that God wants us to know his word and to share his word. But in verse 10, so how did they respond to the second dream? So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now this section right here could be possibly chronologically out of sequence or order from what we were talking about. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 35, 16 through 20, Joseph's mother Rachel had died at that time. But here in the scripture, he references his mother. So it might chronologically be off, but either way, it doesn't matter. The point is, is he's saying, 
What you're saying to me, son, is that your dream is going to say you're going to lord over, going to be over us as well, your mother and your brothers. And he rebuked him. He, he just pushed him back. He said, wait a minute, why are you sharing this? You shouldn't be saying this out loud. But, but notice this, that Israel stopped, even though his brothers envied him, it got worse, his father kept the matter in mind. Why did he keep it in his mind? Why didn't he talk about it outwardly, out, out loud? Because if you remember, Joseph also received, I'm sorry, Jacob also received dreams from God and that's what caused him to be moving and get out of Padam Aram and back down into Israel, down into the land where their, his father dwelt. So he knew God spoke to him through a dream that he could be very seriously being communicating and speaking through a dream to his son, Joseph. Now, the brothers, on the other hand, was envy. What is envy? Well, Envy goes along with a sister named Malice. You ever met the sisters Envy and Malice before? Well, if you go back and look at Titus 3.3 and 1 Peter 2.1, you'll see them. They kind of go together many times in the scripture. Envy causes an inward pain when we see others succeed. You see someone getting to do something in the ministry that you didn't get to do. Didn't go well. You're, you, you become Envy. You got your brother, your sister, it seems to have got the job that you wish you always wanted. Envy could potentially set in. You, you sit there and inwardly you are steaming that someone got something that you want. Malice produces an inward satisfaction when we see others fail. Oh, can't believe they were able to do that. Oh, I hope that fails and no one shows. Oh, I can't believe he got a good job. He's going to be making more money than me. And at the same breath, you say, I hope he doesn't get the job or he'll not make it. Envy and malice is the sins that you and I must watch out for at all times. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. James 3.16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and everything are there. Cain was envious of Abel. Look what, how that turned out. He murdered him. Korah was envious of Moses' leadership. He didn't think Moses should be in leadership. He thought he should be in leadership. And look what happened there. Again, death. Saul was envious over David because God called David to now replace him. And you saw how that happened. Tried to kill David. And even Jesus went to the cross because of envy of the spiritual leaders of that day. See, when Joseph reported the two dreams, the brothers' pride rose up. Then they became envious. Then malice set in. 
Yes, Jacob rebuked him privately or rebuked him. But then J Jacob pondered the dreams. And after all, Jacob had received the same kind of a message from God through dreams. But he knew and we know the will of God is playing out. In verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And yes, the same site their sister was violated at, the same place where Simeon and Levi had did mass murder, and Shechem is a, still the worldly place that they remembered when they were there, and God said to get out of there. The question is, is why would they go back to this worldly place? God said to get out, they're going back, and they're going to take an entire flock and fed them there. But notice in verse 13, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Notice it's a question mark. He didn't send those boys with the flock, his flock up there. He had a question mark. Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. So his father is going to send out the son. And the son said, here I am, I will go. I will be obedient to you, father, and I will go. Even though you know Joseph knew that his ten brothers did not like him. Not only did they hate him, they envied him. But he was going to not fear his brothers. He was going to do it anyway because he's going to be faithful and he's going to be obedient to his father. And he went. Now keep in mind, he's saying to his brother, his son Joseph, your brothers are in Shechem. Remember, Hebron was 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And Shechem was another 30 miles north, a total of 50 miles that he's asking Joseph to go by himself. That's a three to four day journey in the desert. But he was going to be obedient and do it anyway. In verse 14, then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and, and with, well with the flocks. And bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. This valley had everything he needed for their, their flock. Why would they take the flock back to the worldliness, back to the world, back to the place where their lives were threatened, the entire family unity was threatened because the fact that they killed all those, those men. So Jacob sent Joseph as a messenger. The question is, will the brothers receive him when he gets there? You know the story. You see, Jesus told the story of the vineyard owner who went on a journey, and as he was out on the journey, he sent his messengers up to the vineyard, um, those, the servants who were taking care of the vineyard, to receive the rent from them for the fact that they were using that land. And one by one, they sent the messengers, and what happened? They didn't receive those messengers very well. So the owner said, I will send, send my son. They will receive my son. 
Of course they'll receive my son. And what happened in the story? They go up there and they killed the son of the owner. Matthew 28. What happened to Joseph? As the father sends his son out. Well, now a certain man found him. And there here he was, wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go up to let us go to Dorthan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dorthan. So here we are, Joseph just been traveling three to four days. He gets there. He's probably looking, going from field to field, every flock he sees, and his brothers are not there. Here comes a guy and says, you look like you're lost, man. <laughs> what, is he, what are you looking for? You're just wandering around this place. He says, I'm looking for my, my brothers in the flocks. Do you know? And he says, yes, I do know. They went another 14 miles north here called the place of Dothan. Another day's journey Joseph has to make now to get to his brothers. But there in verse 18, now, <laughs> Joseph, now, when they saw him afar, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. How did, could they tell he was so far away? Did he have a certain strut about him? No. A tunic of many colors. No dude is going to come out here and take care of a flock of sheep in a, a, a nice little getup here of tunic from going to the, the wrist down to the, to the, the feet. They, they're not supposed to be out here in the field. You're, you're, you're too nicely dressed to be out here in the suit. But they could tell by the many colors. Now remember, the scripture is very clear. When you have the sin of hatred, in your life. I just, that really irritates me why he does that. And it goes from irritation, I really hate what he does. It never stops there, my brothers and sisters. Sin is a spiraling downward motion. And eventually it will go from an irritation to hatred to envious to malice. And then once it goes from, it starts with the thinking, then it changes who, what, how you think about those things. Then you ultimately start having opportunities to plot murderous thoughts. And when that happens, it's only a matter of time. Thought lines up with heart, that lines up with a motive or a thoughts of playing thoughts of how you're gonna play this out. And it's only for waiting for opportunity and eventually it will result in truly murdering a person. Our hearts are wicked and deceiving. And that's exactly what happens. And it just started with a, just a little bit of bitterness. It takes root. Eventually, it will produce very ugly fruit in a life of a person. So what happens they see him from afar off. They conspire. They start talking to one another. Not how they're going to receive him as his brother. 
Not how I can't believe the brother found us. That's a miracle. But actually looking to see how they're going to kill him. And then it says in verse 19, Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. This dreamer is coming. And so that tells you that they've been pondering this hatred, this, this, this resentment of the dreams that were shared with them. They're out in the field probably been talking about it. And it says verse 20, Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Let's take this boy out, and then we'll see if these dreams are going to work. That takes care of our problem. We'll never have to reign over with him, or he'll never have dominion over us. We won't have to listen to the little brother. But remember, God the Father sent his only begotten son into the world. The Shechem's of the world. And Jesus was willing to go all the way, not only to Shechem, but to Calvary. Because we see that in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He loved the whole world. He loved everyone he created. So much he loved him, he gave his only begotten son for you. And then we can see here in verse 21, but Reuben heard it, which tells me and you, Reuben was not there when the other nine brothers were conspiring to kill his the younger brother. Reuben was out something, looking at the sheep somewhere else. He just overheard it and he delivered him, being Joseph, out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. So the big brother said, no, no. I hear what you're saying. No, that's not happening. Reuben, thank you for stepping up. But not stepped up enough, did he? Watch what happens. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. Why would he tell him, you can't hurt little brother, but throw him in a pit? Well, we see at the very end of 22, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. They must have been so spitting fiery, hot, mad at their brother they, the older brother said, no, you're not going to kill a man. But he had to put him in a safe place in a pit, a cicerin. Why? Because the brothers probably would have torn him limb to limb. So he said, I'll put him safely in the pit, and then I'll come back and get him and take him back to dad. He'll be fine. A pit was a cicerin. It was something they would dig, and it would be very uh, narrow and, and very deep, like 15 to 20 feet in depth straight down, and that's where water would be collected, and that's where they, you know, they would be able to get pull buckets of water out at, at different times. But notice this here. So it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic and the tunic of many colors that was, with, that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty there was no water in it. Well, that was nice of him. At least 
At least they didn't throw him into water. They kept him, threw it into an empty, dry cistern in a pit. But you know those, those guys had the, just the pleasure of delicately taking off the tunic from their younger brother because that's his long journey. I don't think so. I think that tunic came ripping off of him like nothing other and probably tried to take his head off at the same time. You know how brothers are. They're always gentle with their younger brothers. But who else had a coat? Who else had a tunic in the scripture? A seamless tunic stripped from him. Jesus. Verse 25. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. Wait, 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 wait. Why don't we move on? You're telling me you saw your little brother, you took off the tunic, you ripped off the co coat of colors, you throw him in a pit, and then you just sit there and you just calmly have a meal while your little brother is thrown into a pit? gets worse for Joseph. It doesn't get better here. And what happened? They, yes, then they looked and they lifted their eyes and looked and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices and balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. It's a little, it's a little disheartening, isn't it? That, a, that men would be capable of such hatred toward another that they would throw someone in a pit and then just be able to still then calmly have a meal together? It gets worse, right? Because if you, when we get to Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, we see in the scripture that Joseph, while in the pit, was begging crying out for them to, to get him out of that pit and to save them. He wasn't quietly down there going, okay, guys, the joke's over. You know, when you're done eating, can you, can you come get me out? Ha, 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 me. You know, I know how big brothers are. This is fun. No, the scripture says he just literally was suffering and begging to set him free. Reuben, Reuben, you're the oldest. Get me out of here. Simeon, Levi, come on here. Judah, come on. You haven't done anything really bad in your life. I cannot see the other three really messed their lives up, but you didn't mess. Can you, come on, brothers, save me. But they calmly sat there and ate anyway. That shows you the hardness of heart of a person who can do that. The heartless character of these brothers became very clear. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You may not know the heart of a person, but you just watch their actions at over time. And you can judge their actions and it will tell you what their heart is like. So verse 26, so Judah, the fourth brother, stood up to his brothers. Okay, Judah, you're coming to my rescue now. What happens? What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not your, our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh, and his brothers listened. Oh, such hypocrisy. It wasn't bad enough to want to leave him in the pit to die, but oh, wait, we don't get a benefit from this. Yeah, he'll be out of our lives, but how can we make some money here? How can I use my brother to make money off of this man? And then his hypocrisy. Oh, we didn't, we didn't put a hand on the man. We didn't do it. We didn't kill him. There's no blood on our hands. Such hypocrisy. And you call him your brother in your flesh. And sure enough, verse 28, then the Midianite traders passed by, and so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. The brothers thought they had the perfect plan. It's going to work out perfectly. No one's going to know. Their sin will never be found out. <laughs> you don't know God. God sees all things, knows all things. He's everywhere. He, you, you think you're getting away with something? God knows. So what happens here? They forgot that God was watching and was still in control here. Jacob had inherited the coveted blessings, and this made him a very, very special person in the eyes of God and everyone who's around him. And it will be 22 years later in the nation of, of uh, the country of Egypt when this will come full circle and will be their sin will be revealed. Oh, how many times? Oh, I got a perfect plan. No, we'll never know that I have sinned in this way. Got it together. But let me assure you, it may be 22 years later, but it will out. God sees all things. That's why we are to have a reverent or fear of God in our lives to understand those things to stay away from the things that do not please God. Amen? Hello? That was too heavy? Okay, let's keep going. But who else was sold for shekels of silver. Jesus. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes. Where did Reuben land? Why didn't Reuben stay with him? Knowing his little brother's coming. He's in the pit. Keep an eye on him. He obviously had other things in the herd to take care of and stuff. But when he came back to get his little brother. As they moved. Probably moving back on. And go back home. He was gone. He went into pure pain and suffering, and they showed that in those days by tearing their clothes because they can't even express how in anguish they are. Couldn't put it in words, so he, they show it by ripping their clothes. In verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more, and where shall I go? What am I going to do here? I'm the oldest. I have to go back, and he's gone. What am I going to do here? He's like, this is not going to be good. But look in verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic 
killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. So they came out with the actual original plan. They came back to that same plan. We're going to use a way to show to dad, Jacob, Israel, that the youngest son must have gotten taken by some, some beasts and got killed. This is really terrible, dad. I'm not sure how it all happened, you know. But we also see something, a law that you can't get around. The law of reaping and sowing in Galatians 5 or 6, 7. Here we see Jacob reaping what he had sown through his life early on. If you remember, he had killed a beast, killed an animal, and he, and he um, lied to his father. If you remember in Genesis 27, 9, he killed that ghost so that he would put it over his arms. So the hairy arms, remember Esau means hairy, he wanted to match Esau's arm. So when dad was not able to, was blind, couldn't see, he reached out and touched the son. Oh, you're very hairy. Yeah, you must be Esau. He deceived his dad, if you remember. Now his own sons are coming around and going to deceive him by using the goat's blood as a way of deceiving his dad. His own sons will go down the same path of sin that his father took. It's a warning for you and I. Live according to the ways of the Lord as you train up your children because they're watching everything you do. And then we see here, then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know where it is, whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic and a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Make a note of this. Maybe some of you haven't gotten caught this before in verse 32. The brothers were such a wimps and such a losers they could not go face dad him themselves directly. They sent servants with the tunic with the blood on it. That's why at the end, they sent someone else to do the work. And when they got there, that is why they say, the servant says to the thing, whether this is your son's tunic or not, we found this. And of course, Israel recognized the tunic, especially made by him. And sure enough, this is the sad part. Immediately Israel, immediately we see that he quickly drew the conclusion without a doubt that Joseph is torn to pieces. Well, first of all, Proverbs 12.10 says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. We also see that Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. And God's law is unchanging, regardless of what you think. But because they were unwilling to confront their father directly, they sent someone else to do the dirty work of watching their dad go into pure grievance over the loss of their son, of his son. 
But unfortunately, Joseph immediately emotionally attached to his son Joseph, which is understandable, drew the wrong conclusion out of that emotion and out of that circumstance, and without a doubt in his mind, he drew a conclusion that, yes, my son has been torn into pieces by some beast. But that was a false conclusion. If he would stop and step and say, wait a minute, God, you promised me and went back to the promises of God, the Abraham covenant through the Isaac, through Jacob, that this was not how it was supposed to be playing out, that this was he was going to inherit the, the, everything that Jacob has. He wouldn't have drawn the conclusion without a doubt. He would have said that is impossible. Because God said to me. He would never have drawn that conclusion. But that is true for you and I. As a child of God, we have promises. Know those promises. Because when circumstances happen in your life and you say, I don't know how we're going to pay the bills. I don't know how we're going to put food on the table. I don't know where we're going to go. We have just lost everything. You must, as a child of God, before you panic and say, without a doubt, I'm going to die here. You go, no, God, you promised me. And by faith, I will hold on to those promises. Even though I don't feel like it, it's not that I can see it, how it can play out. All I know is your promises are true. And I will hold on to them. Maybe moment by moment. <laughs> day by day. Circumstance by circumstance. But you must daily walk in faith and not by sight. Amen? And then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist. That's exactly what they did in that culture. They just ripped the clothes and put on this really scratchy, miserable clothes, sackcloth on him, on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters, now notice daughters plural. We only knew of one so far in the scripture. We now know he had more than one daughter, not Diana, Dinah, but we had more. And rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Notice, Jacob tore his clothes. Not Israel tore his clothes. So we see a glimpse here that Israel, in this situation, averted back to his old nature of Jacob. And became a really emotional mess here. Then last verse. Verse 36. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and a captain of the guards. Egypt at this time is a very large nation, prosperous nation, thriving kingdom. At least 1,000 years before Joseph came and showed up here in Egypt in this story. They had massive natural resources. They were educated. There was no real enemies powerful enough to take, out, take on Egypt at that point in time. But there is a purpose and a reason why all this is happening. Why? Because God's sovereignty of life. He needed to have Joseph in Egypt for a time like this. 
We have to think it through. In the midst of all of the horror, all this terrible, terrible family issue here. God did not depart from Joseph at all through this whole thing. In some ways, the story will get even worse for Joseph and the family. And when it does, God will still be with Joseph during these terrible times. Because God is working not only for Joseph himself, but also for the larger purpose of God's redemptive plan. Think about this. It started with a dumb coat. Showing him to be the leader over the family here in the future when dad dies. If Joseph's brothers never sell him for 20 pieces of silver to the Midianites, then Joseph would have never gone to Egypt. And if Joseph never goes to Egypt, he never would be sold to Potiphar. And if he wasn't in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife would not have hit on him and then declared uh, rape against him. And if he wasn't there because of Potiphar's wife declaring that he raped him, which was false, he wouldn't have thrown, been thrown into jail. And if he wasn't thrown into jail, he would have never met the baker and the butler in the jail. If he had never met the baker and the butler of Pharaoh, he never would have interpreted the dreams that God needed him to interpret. And if he had never interpreted the dreams, he would never get to be in Pharaoh's prominent position of prime minister. And if he had never been in the prime minister of Pharaoh himself of Egypt, then he would have never administrate or manage wisely the resources that Egypt had of all the food. And he never would have wisely managed during that severe famine that's going to be coming upon the region and his family back in Canaan would have perished and died in the famine. If his family back in Canaan perished from the famine, then the Messiah couldn't come from a dead family. And if the Messiah can't come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, you and I are dead in our sins and without hope in this world. My brothers and sisters, just because you can't see how your life is all played out. No one knows the day and time when God takes us home. Through the rapture or when he brings this body wears out. Or anything in between. But we are to live day by day in the following Jesus. We're not to live 10 years or 20 years or 40. You, you have no guarantee for tomorrow, the Bible says. You and I are prideful enough to think we're going to be a winner here tomorrow. We're to live for him today. And when we wake up in the morning and we open our eyes, then we give thanks to God for giving us another day. Amen? <coughs> And so we wait in anticipation for God to come back. And as he works through Joseph's life as a young man. And he's like Jesus in that he is a beloved by his father. Obedient to his will. 
He was hated and rejected by his own brethren and sold as a slave and falsely accused, unjustly punished, and finally elevated from the place of suffering to a powerful throne, saving his people from death. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And to those who are called according to his, God's, purpose. That promise is for you as a believer. That promise I just read is not for you if you're a non-believer. So if you sit here today and you're playing church. And you don't have a personal relationship with God. You haven't been born again. That promise is not for you. It's only for those who accepted Jesus Christ by faith and by faith alone for their salvation. You can't work for your salvation. Are you kidding? It's a free gift. He's handing it to you. He's just saying, will you receive me? But today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day you can surrender your life to God and allow God to come into your life and save you for eternity. The only question here, the question is not if God is offering you the free gift of salvation. He died for the whole world. That includes you. Oh, no, no, don't get me wrong. He knows every, every sin of your life, past, present, and the future sins you'll make. But he died for all of that, and he still offers you the way to the Father in heaven. Will you accept him? Will you accept that free gift of salvation? All you have to do is admit you're a sinner that needs to be saved. And that the only way you can go to heaven and be saved and be forgiven of all your sins is to believe in the one who sacrificed his life for you on the cross. The perfect lamb of God. And guess what? He hears your thoughts. He can hear your cries now. And if that is you, and you're saying, God, I am a wicked man or a wicked woman, and I need to be saved. I've been playing I can't play anymore. I want you and you alone. I want to follow you the rest of my life. I'm not going to make a spectacle of you. That's between you and God. I saved nobody. No one here saves anybody. Only God can save you. The personal relationship's not with me, even though I, I want a relationship with you. But the personal relationship is with God in you. You cry out in your mind. You stand up and go to God in your mind. And then just come and share the good news with us. Don't be, a, don't be uh, afraid or don't be... Um, okay, it's not coming out. Don't be ashamed of starting a relationship with God and you need to be saved. When we stand here and we're closing out, I want you to come. Come see me. I want to pray for you, with you, help you. I want to pour into you the, what the things you need to know about God 
because he can save you and his God's sovereignty over your life, he can hold all to good for those who love him according to his call. Amen?